excited to bring to you today a sponsor for this podcast, Logos Bible Software and the Kingdom Dreamers have teamed up to bring you an exclusive deal right now. If you click on the link in the description here on YouTube or in the show notes of your podcast, you can get the fundamental package for their Bible software plus five pre-selected books and several other $199 offers. I've been using Logos for a decade, a little bit more than a decade now, and it's been an incredible tool in my Bible study. I have tons of commentaries on there, tons of language work that I do on there. It's a part of my daily routine, a part of my sermon prep, a part of my study. So if you haven't tried out Logos Bible software, give it a try. Click on the link. Got a special deal for you to get started. Check out the software. You won't regret it. Welcome, church, to the house of the Lord this morning. Thank you, Sister Mary, for that delightful hymn. I hope you're ready to receive from the Lord this morning, church. We have the distinct privilege to welcome to the pulpit this morning. Uh, um, uh, what's that dude's name? You are now tuned in to the Sermon Archives of William R. Horn. Kingdom Dreamer Productions. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome in to the Sermon Archives with William R. Horn, yours truly. Support the Kingdom Dreamer movement at patreon.com forward slash Kingdom Dreamers. Follow me on Twitter at William R. Horn, H-O-R-N-E. Let's get into it. We're still in season one right now. Sermons of days past. This is episode 10 of, we'll have 14 episodes this season. So we're coming to the end of season one, episode 10 of season one. So today what we have is a shift in the sermons all right this one is going to come from almost a year after the last sermon um after i transitioned to chicago got into a new church body so i didn't preach for 10 months almost a year um so there's some distance in between this you can feel that distance in between it um so this one is called this was recorded on august 14 2014 this one's called the church in a postmodern world. Uh, and it's on a, a study on Luke Acts again, which is similar to another sermon we did in the past. And this one takes place at the Sign of the Dove Church in Waukegan, Illinois, which is where I was a member, served as a youth pastor for a season. I was there for six years while we were in Chicago. Four of those was focused on seminary. So preaching was minimum, but a major church in my spiritual developments, um, just a great community there uh people who are beloved um yeah that's that's my people up there in chicago pastor harry stackhouse spiritual mentor of mine it's founded that church also pastor Corey ratliff and jason dewey are co-pastoring the church right now great friends and mentors to me uh you might even hear their sermons later on in another season when uh when we potentially have featured guests so be ready for that coming season three probably be ready. It'll come later this year, but uh, dear church to me. So um, yeah, you might hear him in the future. So this church, uh, before I get into this sermon, though, I do want to make note of something I was thinking about um, as I was producing all of this first season. Uh, I want to make note at the limited amount of fruit that this medium can have um, with sermons, right? Because real sermons, right? They're not monologues, which is essentially what you're getting here. You're getting a monologue or more of a peek into a certain context. But real sermons are things that are a, a dialogue, a dialectic witness, so to say, of the gathered church, right? The, the gathered church has to be together um, and experience this together, right? Unfortunately, in a lot of our new church contexts, especially with you know us doing satellite churches with videos, streaming and all that stuff, um, it really kills what the sermon is and what the church gathered is. I don't want this medium to be any part of that at all. This podcast is not going to be a part of that. You need to be in a church gathering. 
and honestly, preferably in a church gathering with a pastor present, truly uh, being a part of it. Because listening to sermons, that's great. It can bear some fruit. Of course, you want to hear a good word, but true fruit will come on the ground in gathered context uh, when you're witnessing that sermon together as a congregation and as a pastor speaker. So this does not take up that medium. You need to be an authentic church community. So if you're listening to this on a Sunday morning, unless you're sick and can't be in your church body, you need to turn it off and go to church. That's just the facts. I want this podcast to be something that helps gain fruit during the week, something to give you a little spiritual uplift, um, but not something that replaces your church community. I just wanted to make that very, very clear. But uh, let's get into this sermon. I want you to remember also context matters. So the point of this sermon, um, the church in a postmodern world dealt with a question that the church was currently wrestling with in that season. And honestly, this sermon is one of my favorites, if not my favorite sermon um, that I've done that I was a part of um, in this first season. I think it's definitely my favorite in this first season. Um, I would, I guess, a disclaimer. I'm, I'm really feeling this one still. This is 2014, so I guess it's not too long ago, six years ago, a little less. Uh, but I would be much stronger on the allegiance point when you come to that in the sermon. And I have a better understanding of Matthew 22 and Romans 13. So I'd come much stronger on that point when we get to it. But again, let's jump into it. I don't want to delay any longer. Um, this is the church in a postmodern world. So three characteristics for a church in a postmodern world. A study on Luke Acts at Sign of the Dove Church in Waukegan, Illinois. Hope you enjoy. We are, our body is actively engaged in praying for our students. Would you take some time right now and welcome Will Horn, he's a person of our body. He's a family member of our body. Uh, we're very delighted to have him to be our guest speaker today. He is a part of the youth staff. He's also a student at Trinity. And I just want him to just feel the love of the family, his family, the sign of the dove. Will, would you come? Good morning, Sign of the Dove. It's good to see you today. How y'all feeling? Good? Good. Uh, real quick, I want to speak to that interview. Um, do you guys know that we are the most powerful people on this planet? That we hold the power of salvation in our hands? That God has called us to demonstrate this power wherever we walk? That we have no reason to be ashamed? And that's not just talk like, hey, go ahead and say something about Christ, because that's what you're supposed to do to be a good kid, to be a good person. But we have power. Evil can't jump off on us. We can stomp it to the ground. Right? The devil cannot beat us. We already won. So I want us as a church to take confidence in the words of Christ and in the power the Holy Spirit has put in us. So a humbling thing for a preacher is knowing that by 2 o'clock, most people won't remember what you said. <laughs> I mean, think about it, right? I'm just being real. That, you know, by 2 o'clock this afternoon, you got your lunch, you know, all the kids, everything fixed, right? And you might remember 10% of the sermon if you liked it, if you were feeling it, right? <laughs> but that just goes to show you that the words of man and the opinions of man will die. They don't mean anything. But there's something about the Word of God, isn't there? That you don't even have to remember the place you're at or what was said around it, but the Word of God has the power to change hearts and minds just by it being preached. So today, I come to you as a broken vessel, and what I say doesn't matter. But I put all my confidence in the truth of the Word, knowing that it's going to change hearts and minds and draw people closer to Jesus. Amen? Amen? So, would you pray with me towards those ends? Let's pray before we dive in and pray that the Holy Spirit would open us up, that we'd be in tune with Him. He'd take the scales off our eyes so that we can see truth today. Alright, so let's pray. Father, we acknowledge You as King. 
We acknowledge you as king in this place and we submit to your work here today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would indwell this place, that you would open up our ears, you would open up our eyes, you would circumcise our hearts and allow us to hear your truth. I ask that we would become the church that you have called, the church that represents you well in this new generation. Allow me to decrease and you to increase. And I pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. So, the question has been asked here at Sign of the Dove. What does the church look like in these changing times? We've heard it asked a few places. This was the focus of the DMI conference about a month ago, right? How do we look in these changing times? And I know this has been the backdrop to Pastor Harry's sermon series on spiritual warfare because the spiritual war is growing, right? We have to be prepared for that. But... Even though this question has been asked, I don't think we've come to a conclusive answer to it. What does the church look like in this new generation? But first we must ask the question, is what is this new generation? What is the culture we live in? Right? And this is appropriate for you Sunday because this is the only generation, right? The only culture, the only church that our youth are going to see. Right? We can say it was cool back in the day, but they don't know what back in the day was, and it wasn't really cool back then either. We just like to glorify like it is. The world's always been fallen. Everything's always been messed up. Welcome to the fallen world. Right? But first we must ask, what is this culture we are entering? When we look at Europe and most of the regions of America right now, we've entered what is called the postmodern era or the post-Christendom era. And in this new culture... Logic and reason aren't held as high as they were in the modern era. But emotion and relative truth are held higher. And this isn't all bad like we like to condemn it, right? We're really good at condemning things and saying everything's awful and not look at the good, right? In this new culture, spiritual conversations are actually on the rise, right? There are open doors for the church to take and tell them about Jesus Christ, So with these new openness, there has also come a new moral standard, right? And the moral standard is whatever you like, whatever feels good. And along with this, we have reached the height of the sexual revolution. And with relative truth, meaning there is no truth, the Church of Jesus Christ has lost its favor and is facing hostility in our society. We're right at the beginning of this in the Midwest. We're at the beginning of this. So we're seeing peaks of it, but we're not there yet. It's continuing to come. It used to be that the church was a respected part of society, somewhere that people could look to, and it had favor in the culture. And it's been that way in the whole Western world since Constantine in the 4th century made it the state religion of Rome. So we've been like this for a long time. Right? We've had favor. The church has had power. But now most are saying that Christianity and the church has lost its home field advantage. But no worries, because our God and his true church have a pretty good away record, too. Right? We don't need home field advantage. In fact, God is undefeated home and away. So that's all right. We're okay with that. And if we look at the second and third century church and the church in the book of Acts, their culture looked a lot like ours. It's kind of strange, actually, because it looked almost exactly like ours without the technology and all that, right? They lived in a culture that held relative truth sacred, right? For you to say there's only one way to God and there's only one truth, that's taboo. You're crazy. It was that way then, it's that way now, right? You can't say there's one way to God. That's, you're a bigot. That's no good. That's what they're, t- they're saying, right? And you could mix any spiritual idea you wanted with another and call it truth. This is, this is what I believe. This is truth. That was how the second and third century was and how it is today, what we're reaching. So they look really similar. And with this, the church still grew, right? The mission of God never stopped. Even when they literally tried to kill us, 
It continued, right? One of my favorite quotes from church history is from a guy named Tertullian. Uh, He lived in the second and third century, and he was one of the first to talk about the Trinity. And he said this. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. They can kill us, but God's redemption plan will never stop. They can kill us, but the kingdom movement will continue. They can kill us, but the true church will never die. This quote also seems to match scripture, the often quoted words of Paul to the Philippians, where he said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. This is a hard reality, but maybe it's something we need to re-embrace as the church. We've talked a lot about, hey, the church should start looking like the book of Acts. And we've said that a lot, but it still doesn't look like Acts. And I question why. Maybe it was that the cultural timing wasn't there. That's true, but I just pointed out that now's the time, right? We look just like the culture that surrounded the church of Acts. Maybe it's because we're scared to live such a radical life, to give up all that we own and really become one. Right? Maybe we're too tied to our American ideals of individualism and success is found in me going to the top, getting a, you know, a wife, house, kids, and a dog, and it's all good. Maybe those things have scared us off from actually looking like the book of Acts. So here's what I want to talk about today. My central question is what can we draw from the early church and Jesus for the church in the postmodern era? What can we draw from the early church for the modern church? And based upon a study in the Luke-Acts narrative, I would like to draw three characteristics of the early church that should inform how we look as the modern church. And with these three characteristics, I also want to point out something that Jesus and the early church were not that we're often tempted to do. And then I'll end each point asking hard questions for us to answer. So y'all see the roadmap? Get where we're going? All right, so if the Sandman comes for you and start falling asleep, you come back in, you'll know right where we're at, right? You saw the roadmap. All right, so there's no excuse today that you won't know where I'm at, all right? All right, three characteristics of the early church, three things they weren't, and hard questions for us to answer. So first... Let's dive in. The first thing I see in the book of Luke and Acts is that Jesus and the early church were a radically inclusive community. They were a radically inclusive community. Now, what do I mean by all this? It means that absolutely everybody was invited to join this community. First off, let's take a look at Jesus and see how inclusive he actually was. So turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, if you have your Bibles, which you should. To the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in Luke Acts all the time, so it should be pretty easy to follow. Luke, and we're going to start in chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Luke 4, starting in verse 16. So here Jesus just got out of the temptation in the wilderness, and he's about to begin his ministry, right? And here's what he does, starting in verse 16. And he, being Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet of Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So here Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, the first two verses, and he says, this is who I am. 
This is my identity. Right? Notice who he came for. He came for the poor, right? The captive or the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. All these people are considered marginalized people. People that are on the outside of the religious group of the day, right? These people were outside the Jewish, you know, religious houses. But this is, from the get-go, what Jesus came for. For people outside of the religious circle. Now, this isn't just a, a cute reference back to the Old Testament that Jesus wanted to do, right? But he really lived this life. A life of inclusivity, right? Including the outsider and the rejected. This is how King Jesus lives. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, there are eight different meal scenes with Jesus. There's eight different ones. And I'd love to go through all of them, but that's a sermon for another day. But there are eight scenes, and all of them take this similar pattern. It's really interesting. Jesus is either, one, eating with somebody who is an outsider, considered a sinner, nasty, something, who's somebody rejected by the religious people. Or two, he's rebuking a religious person for not eating with the outsider. And the third thing that he does in some of these meals is he teaches the true nature of hospitality and it's always orientated towards the outsider. Isn't that interesting? All eight meals in Luke, read them. I, I can give you scriptures afterwards, but let's just read one of these meals so you get the picture of what continues to happen when Jesus eats a meal with somebody. Turn to Luke chapter 7 with me. Just a few chapters over. Luke chapter 7 beginning in verse 36. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that is Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the, her, the hair of her head, kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus answered him. Notice that he wasn't even talking to Jesus, but Jesus still answered him. Kind of interesting. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say, teacher, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave both of them. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Now there's a lot we could talk about in this passage, right? We could talk about how the host didn't do the proper things of the, of the day, right? He didn't give water for Jesus' feet because he's walking out in the dust all day. He didn't kiss him. He didn't anoint him with oil. Or we could talk about what type of sinner is this woman, actually. Or how she just rolled up in this dude's house because she really wanted to see Jesus. <laughs> she didn't have an invitation or nothing. That's really odd, isn't it? But we could talk about all those things. But what I want you to see is that this woman was clearly an outsider. Right? She was clearly outside the religious group of the day. The Pharisees even go as far as condemning Jesus for dealing with her. That's a little bold, ain't it? Condemn Jesus? All right. But notice what Jesus does. 
he focuses on this outsider, this lowly woman. And then he points out the flawed thinking of the Pharisee about this woman. Every meal throughout Acts takes a similar vein in pointing towards the outsider and the true nature of hospitality. Jesus lived a radically inclusive life. Now, this inclusive plan continued into the early church, right? As we know, God's redemption plan has always been for the nations, but in Jesus, it came to its fulfillment, that all the nations can come to Jesus. And in the new covenant, sins are forgiven, right? And the law is written on our hearts, and the saving grace of God is extended to all people. And the early church resembled this too. If you would turn to Acts chapter 10 with me. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 9. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 9. We'll jump around a little bit, but the context of what's here is that Cornelius was told by God to go to Peter, and Peter's about to have a vision, okay? And this is what happens in his vision. Starting in verse 9. On the next day... As they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer considered unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now skip down to verse 24. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I am too just a man. As he talked with them, he entered and found people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit them. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came this evening without any objection when I was sent. So I asked, For what reason have you sent me? Now skip down to verse 34, and we'll finish this scene. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does right is welcome to him. The word which he has sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know, Jesus of the Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things. He did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted he become visible, not to all people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people, solemnly testifying that this is the one who was appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive the forgiveness of sins. Now this is a beautiful picture, isn't it? That Peter who was you know, grow up under Jewish law and thought a certain way with good intentions, right, because that's what God had told him to do, was corrected by a vision from God. That now it's not just the Jews, it's everybody. Everybody gets this, right? And this new covenant is open to the world. See, the church is commissioned to bring truth and healing of the kingdom to all. God shows no partiality. That's what Peter said, right? That's what he understood this vision to mean. That means that every person you hate, Jesus in the church is for them. That means that every person that doesn't have the same political belief as you, Jesus in the church is for them. 
That means that the prostitute, the drug addict, the person struggling with homosexuality, Jesus in the church is for them. That means the sick, the poor, the blind, Jesus in the church is for them. Do you get the picture? Jesus and the church are for the outsiders. So in light of this, before I go to the next characteristic, I'd like to point out something that Jesus and the early church were not, that we often find ourselves doing. Jesus and the early church were not separatists. They were not separatists. Now, what do I mean by separatists? I mean, we often, as the church, choose to close in on ourselves and stay away from the world. Keep them out. Right? And it sounds, you know, all righteous because we do this out of like, I don't want to be part of the world. And it sounds righteous, good, and like godly, but it's actually very dangerous. And it's not faithful to the mission of the church. Right? We were never called to make an exclusive clubhouse to close ourselves in on. We were never called to do that. And what happens from this mindset, that is innocent, right? Because often we find ourselves preaching morals like be good, stay away from the world. And this gets in the back of our mind. We don't even know it. That we just play separate from the culture. That we're scared of it. And from this comes moralistic gospel, not a real gospel. A condemning of all people outside the church instead of calling them to the gospel. And the exclusive clubhouse is not light in the darkness. This mindset makes the church the opposite of a radically inclusive community. And it does the same as the Pharisees, making an exclusive community that keeps people from entering the kingdom. It's hard to hear, isn't it? But the fact is that Jesus lived in the culture and he was actually outside of the religious group of the day, right? The church also, the early church, didn't seek to become separate from the culture, but they lived in it. Don't hear me saying look like the culture or do the things they do, because that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is it's hard to be light when you're locked in a church building. Am I right? Even in 1 Peter, I know this is on Luke and Acts, but in 1 Peter, they talk, he talks about in this letter, there's this call to be holy because God is holy, but live under the scrutiny of non-believers. It's hard to live under the scrutiny of non-believers if we avoid them at all costs. Just saying. Don't be a separatist. So let's ask some hard questions. One, who are the others we have chosen to exclude from the love of Christ? Who are the others we have chosen to exclude from the love of Christ? And if the sign of the dove left 10th Street, would they even notice? We have to ask this of ourselves. And put it on an individual level too, right? If you moved out of your neighborhood, would they even notice? If we're going to be light in our communities, if we're going to be an inclusive community... We need to be out there loving people, right? The answer to these questions lies in if we live as a people who are radically inclusive or an exclusive clubhouse. The Church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be radically inclusive. Characteristic number two is that the early church in Jesus had a radically exclusive message. They had a radically exclusive message. Now, this is what makes the church rather unique, is that they're an inclusive community with an exclusive message. This makes things a little interesting, right? Because we can't just say, everybody come in, you saved, it's cool, whatever, do what you want. But there's something a lot more powerful than that, isn't there? In the life of Jesus in the early church, it was clear that there was absolute truth and that Jesus was the only way to God. There was no other way. Not all spiritual things lead to God. Being a morally upstanding citizen means nothing. And simply believing in God just puts you on the same plane as the devil. Because he believes in God too. Only true faith in Jesus as king and repentance through the power of the Holy Spirit leads to life. Being exclusive, especially about spiritual matters today, is an extreme. And people don't like to hear it. But there's no denying the living truth of the gospel, right? So first, let's look to Jesus and see how exclusive he was in his message. Inclusive in his character, exclusive in his message. Turn back to Luke with me. Luke chapter 9. 
starting in verse 23. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23. Now let, let this get in your spirit. This is one of my favorite sayings of Jesus. Luke 9, starting verse 23. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. He identifies himself as the way and calls us to not deny ourselves and follow him. And then he goes right to the core of our search for life as fallen people. For whoever wishes to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake, they're the ones who will save it. That's crazy. It takes forever to wrap our mind around that. But think about what he's saying. People are out here trying to save their life any way possible, right? They want, you know, money, a nice house, well status relationships, even to live longer, right? So both literally and metaphorically trying to save their life, trying to make something of it, right? This is our constant battle as fallen men, is trying to make our life worth something and avoid dying at the same time. That's what we want to do, right? It's at the core of our fallen nature, not our human nature, our fallen nature, right? But no matter how hard we try to save our life, we always lose it. It always falls down, right? You finally get that house, you finally get your money on lock, got your wife, house, kids, and a dog, and things are still screwed up, right? And every time we try to live longer and longer and do all these medical procedures, you still end up dying eventually. And if you don't die, you live long enough that you want to. <laughs> a classic example of this is a few years ago, in, on a 60 Minutes interview, they had one with Tom Brady. Many of you might have seen this. This was after he won his third Super Bowl ring. He was on top of the world, right? He's the best player at this time in the NFL, considered by most. He has money we can't even fathom and a supermodel wife. But he says the following, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I think, God, there has to be something more than this. And said God's name in vain. He wasn't going to God. And the reporter asked him, what is the answer? And he said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Nothing in this world can save our lives. But when we submit it all, when we choose to lose it all to King Jesus, Amen. when we say, all, these, all this stuff, forget it. Yeah. My life, I don't care if you kill me, I got Jesus. Yeah. When we come to this point, we can actually live. Yeah. We are actually given life. This is the exclusive message of Jesus. Wow. That you lose your life for my sake, you'll actually live. When you submit to me as king and say, I'm not king anymore, I'm not queen anymore, that you actually live is mind-blowing. There's only one true way to life, and that's submitting all to King Jesus. Turn with me to Luke 13. Let's continue to see this. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. And this is Jesus again. And he was passing through one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few people who are going to be saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, and they will not be able to. Once the head of the household gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say, I do not know where you are from. And then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, you all you evildoers. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself being thrown out. And they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Sounds like there's going to be a lot of surprises when Jesus comes back. Right? Sounds like there's going to be a lot of surprises. It's also clear here that there is only one narrow door by which we can enter, and not everybody's going to enter it. People will do a whole lot of things that they think are good, worthy, righteous, godly, and they won't enter this door. They won't enter this door, but only true faith and repentance in King Jesus will bring one to the table of the kingdom. Now, you notice both what we've talked about so far in here, everybody from east, west, north, south, everybody's invited, but not everybody will enter. Now, look now with me to the early church, and we'll see this message of exclusive faith, repentance, and baptism will be continuous. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Beginning in verse 5. So the context of this is Peter and John. They have been healing and preaching this exclusive message. And they ran into some beef with the religious leaders. And here's what happens. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. It reads... On the next day, their rulers and elders, scribes, were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Ananias, the high priest, was there, and Sophias, and John, and Alexander, all who are of the high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power and what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man was made well, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved." There is no other name by which we must be saved. The early church was willing to die for this exclusive message. They were willing to die for it. Are we? Are we willing to die for this exclusive message? Do we truly believe that living is actually found in Jesus? We need to question ourselves on that. We need to question ourselves on that because the good news of King Jesus and true living in his kingdom that has no end is our exclusive message. There's no other message. Before I move on to the next point, I'd like to point out something again that we are tempted to do, but Jesus and the early church weren't. With an exclusive message also comes exclusive allegiance. Okay? You hear that? With an exclusive message comes exclusive allegiance. So Jesus and the early church were not nationalists. Now what do I mean by nationalists? I mean that the early church in Rome were not Roman patriots under the Roman Empire. Now I know this point might gain me some haters and I'm okay with that because I'm really convicted about this. Okay? That when I continue to look at the world we live in and look at the biblical narrative... I'm convinced that maybe we should stop thinking about ourselves as American citizens who happen to be Christians, but kingdom citizens who happen to live in America. Now, I'm not speaking against Jesus' words in Matthew 22 where he tells them to pay their taxes, right? Pay to Caesars what is Caesars. And I'm not speaking against Paul's words in Romans 13 that say submit to the government, right? Obey the laws of the lands. But what I am saying is that we are from another world. We are of another kingdom. And it's the kingdom that has no end. And nowhere in the early church do you see them supporting Rome, but nowhere do you see them rebelling against Rome either. We see the same thing in Jesus' life when he could have came with political power and, in fact, 
the Jews wanted him to, right? To come as a military leader with political power that could overthrow them over Rome and Jews would rule the world, right? They wanted that, but he didn't do that. He came as a, a wandering homeless rabbi who worked outside of the governments, right? He worked outside of it. We are called to an exclusive allegiance to King Jesus and his kingdom. And the word allegiance alone eliminates multiples, right? You can't be allegiant to more than one thing. That's just what the word is, right? So you can't be, and take this with a grain of salt, you cannot be an American patriot and a kingdom patriot. Our churches have become increasingly affected by our ties with the American lifestyle, right? With the political power, with how we live as individuals, right? The, how we think about success in America. But we must live as kingdom citizens operating in a kingdom lifestyle, kingdom mindset, and kingdom ethics. This is something we really need to wrestle with. So hard questions to end this point. How much is our American mindset affecting our kingdom mindset? Are we willing to die for the exclusive message of Jesus Christ? And do we truly believe that true living is found in Jesus and his kingdom alone? These are things you need to wrestle with this afternoon and this week. We cannot afford to ignore these questions if we're going to live as the church in the postmodern era. So my third point of who Jesus and the church were. So they are radically inclusive, right? A radically inclusive community with a radically exclusive message who radically embrace suffering. Who radically embrace suffering. Now this point changed a few times for me, and this is what I really feel it is in the book of Luke and Acts, is they radically embraced suffering. This characteristic, we have a lot of trouble understanding in America. Because we have been blessed, right? We've been part of a a generation that had religious freedom, that had all these things, right, and were favored in society. And as I said, in the postmodern era, things are becoming hostile towards us. Things are changing. And we often think in this mindset that, yes, God wants our good, and God gives good gifts to his children, so that must mean I won't suffer and I'll live a comfortable life. And then I'm actually good with God. That's so far from the truth. If you just read the Luke-Acts narrative, let alone the whole Bible, you'll see how false this mindset is. What is unique about the church and the Christian is how they walk through suffering. There's no other person, no other people on this planet that can walk through suffering with joy. That can walk through suffering knowing that the king is just forming them into this image. Right? There is no other group that can walk through suffering how we are supposed to walk through suffering. Now turn to Luke chapter 21 with me. Back to Luke. Chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 5. This is Jesus again. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the day will come in which there will be not one stone upon another left, which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said to them, See to it that you're not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Don't go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbance, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare to defend yourself. Hear that? Not to prepare to defend yourself. 
For I will give you utterance and wisdom which, is, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated because of my name. Yet, not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your life. By your endurance, you will gain your life. Now, Jesus was speaking this directly to his disciples, and we'll see in a minute that that happened pretty immediately for them. But this also says something to us, that we will be hated because of Jesus. Right? Jesus warns about, he talks about the temple which will fall, right, which came. He talks about not being distracted by all the signs and garbage of this world, right? And he says that we will be persecuted. We will face persecution in the future. And the disciples did immediately after this, actually. We as Christians have been, especially outside of America, physically abused, thrown in prison, and brought before governments. Especially now, if you're paying attention to the news. These sufferings will merely be opportunities for us to testify about our king. He even goes as far to say, don't prepare to defend yourself. It's kind of hard to chew on, right? Because, you know, especially as a man in America, it's all like, I got you know, to be strapped up, protect my house, all these things, and keep preaching, right? Right to bear arms. He says, prepare not to defend yourself, for I'll give you the words to say. Think about that. Think about that. He is the sovereign king who cares for us and we know he will return for his children. So they can put us to death, but in all reality, not a hair on our head will perish because we're going to live forever. Right? We're going to reign with our king, worshiping in the rest of the days of our life. We're going to live forever. And by our endurance, we will gain our lives. By how we endure suffering will show who our God is. And obviously, looking at Jesus' life, he said this as a man who suffered greatly, right? As I said before, he was basically a wandering homeless man, right, who was tortured and died a gruesome death for his children in the glory of his father. So he didn't say this not suffering himself as a man. The church must follow in his footsteps and walk through suffering well. Turn with me to Acts 5. We're almost there. Just want to see what the early church did. Acts chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 17. Verse 17, we will we'll skip around a little bit because the story's long. But in verse 17 it says, But the high priest rose along with all of his associates, that is the sect of Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. All right, so what, what happens in between here, right? They get thrown in jail, and God opens up the gates and says, hey, go continue preaching. Don't worry about this. Just a little bump in the road, right? Go down to verse 25. But someone came and reported to him, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence because they were afraid that the people might stone them. And when they brought them, they stood before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, We have given you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging on the cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. So we're going to skip down to verse 40, right? So... The Pharisees wanted to kill them because they just said, no, nah, we're going to keep teaching. This is, we obey God, not man, right? So they're like, all right, we'll take them out. They get advice like, hey, if you actually kill them and they're rolling with God, it might not turn out so hot for you. So they're like, all right, we'll step back a little bit. Verse 40. 
They took his advice, the advice I just talked about. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They considered it worthy to suffer for Jesus. That's crazy. They walk away happy because they got to suffer for Jesus. They get flogged and beat up, and they considered worthy. They just kept right on preaching and teaching too, right? Nothing stopped them. And they're going to everybody, right? So they were being inclusive, going to everybody. They had that exclusive message, and they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, something else we must also understand is that not all suffering is for the name of Jesus. Though I don't have time to walk through all the different types of suffering, I would like to give you four categories of suffering that we see in the Bible, all which the church must walk through well to represent our King. Right? Now, how you walk through them is different. But here's the categories I've seen. And I can give you scripture afterwards if you want all the scripture for each of these. The first one is suffering when living righteously for God. Now, that's what we just saw, right? Is they were considered worthy to suffer because they were preaching Jesus Christ. Right? So that's one type of suffering. A second type of suffering is suffering as the human race in a fallen world. Right? There's natural disasters, all sorts of things we see that came from Genesis 3, right? And we suffer because we live in a fallen world. The third type of suffering is suffering because of sin in our lives. That when we do sin, there are consequences for that. And how we walk through that suffering speaks about our God also. It's not just a condemned you sin, you know, it's all over. How you walk through the suffering, the punishment... Not necessarily from God, but what happens in this world from when you do something wrong. How you walk through that speaks about our God. And here's the fourth type, and I'm still wrestling with how this one looks. Is Christ calls us into the suffering of others. He calls us into the suffering of others. As the church, we are called to enter people's suffering, to mourn with them, to cry with them, and to encourage them when needed. And to literally suffer with them. That's what the church is called to do. See, all of these categories are opportunities for us to walk out the kingdom mindset and be witnesses to the world about the God we serve. But it all depends on how you walk through them. With this mindset, we can also conclude that Jesus in the early church, this is something they weren't, were not looking for earthly prosperity. They were not looking for earthly prosperity. Now, I know most of us, you know, in a church like this will deny the prosperity gospel and call them out and all that, um, which is true, right? We don't want none of that. But when we look at our own lives throughout the week, we live like a mini prosperity gospel a lot of time. I like to point out that the mindset of prosperity, earthly prosperity, is not far from us. See, most of us still measure our success by our material wealth and stability and how, how the world looks at us. And most of us still hold certain material wants higher than our kingdom wants. And most of us still think that if God is for us, who can be against us means we're supposed to live a comfortable life. But it doesn't. It doesn't. This is simply not true. And it's a dangerous mindset to be in, even though we usually don't intentionally think it. It's kind of in the back of our minds because that's how we've been culturally raised, right? The church of Jesus Christ will win in the end, and like I said earlier, we are the most powerful people on this planet, right? But American success and material wealth here has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with that. All our riches are in the kingdom to come. So we must evaluate ourselves and deny any connection of God with earthly prosperity. We cannot say blessings are wealth because that's not the case. Read the Bible. I'm just telling you. Be the people who embrace and walk as light in your sufferings and in the sufferings of others. So here's the hard questions to end this point. Is how do you walk through suffering? Do you embrace it 
Do you rejoice, trusting that God is king over it? Do I place my financial and material success over my kingdom success? And when it comes to it, am I willing to suffer death and physical persecution for the kingdom, for Jesus' name? More hard questions that we cannot ignore, that we must wrestle with. If we are going to be the church of Jesus Christ in these changing times, we must be a radically inclusive community with a radically exclusive message who radically walk through suffering, radically embrace suffering. This is how our community should look. This is how we should look as individuals, right? Living well in the world, being the church. Now, I bring this word to you because I feel as if we can get distracted by a lot of side issues as the church and a lot of questions as to how we're supposed to look when everything's changing in this postmodern era. And I like to say that we need to focus on what it means to be the church and live that out, right? As inclusive, exclusive message, embracing suffering. This is what we need to focus on in the postmodern era, right? There's no magic tricks to being relevant. There's no shut yourself in and forget the world because it's all going to hell anyhow. This is how we're supposed to live. We must embrace the fullness of who the church is and know that we win in the end, that our king is undefeated, even when we're away. And we hold power over evil, and we can preach life and freedom to the lost, and we can walk through suffering as our Messiah did. So if you are here today, and you are not part of this kingdom of God, here's an opportunity for you to become part. If you have not submitted to Jesus as king, Here's your opportunity to do so. You can become part of this radically inclusive, diverse community that loves all and that will preach truth to you. And you can become a child of the Most High God who loves you and longs for you to trust Him. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to Christ, but you come to Him and He does that work. Right? You don't take a bath before you or you clean up before you take a bath. You don't do none of that, right? You take a bath to get cleaned up. So, you have a chance to respond in faith in King Jesus, submitting to him as king, and repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he will change your desires to the king's desires when you submit to that. This isn't a, a self-effort thing. It never works. So if you want to join this kingdom and submit to Christ as king, and you haven't done so, or you've walked away from that, would you stand right now? If you have not submitted to the king, would you stand right now? There's still opportunities, even if you don't stand now, to talk to any of the ministers who are here in this church. If you want to submit to this king and find out what true living is. And then for us as the church, we need to ask these questions of ourselves when we go home. Are we living as the actual church? Here's how I like to close. I like to read. You don't necessarily have to turn there with me, but I'm going to read Luke chapter 24, verse 44 through 48, and this is right at the end of Jesus' life. And this puts it all together, I think. It has all these elements in it. It says, Now he said to them, these are my words which I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that all the things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophet and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Amen. Brother Will, we want to say thank you for your word. Thank you for truly pouring out your heart to us today. We appreciate it so much. Bless you.
listening to another episode of the Sermon Archives from William R. Horn. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and check us out on YouTube. Follow your boy on Twitter at William R. Horn, H-O-R-N-E. And check us out at KingdomDreamer.com. Kingdom Jews are excited to partner with Fiverr where we got our local design. You can find the perfect freelance service for any of your business needs. If you need a logo design, voiceover, translation, blog posts, social media boosts, you can find the right person for the job on Fiverr. Check the link below. If you're on YouTube, you can see the descriptions. If you're listening to podcasts, check our show notes, Fiverr.